every good work. Okay. You can tell the low-budget movies we're giving you guys by our voice actors we're stuck with here. It's the cross we bear. All right, well, if you will, um, open your Bibles with you to Titus chapter 3. I will pretty much be in this chapter the entire time, so just have it out on your lap and just leave it there and glance down at it throughout the sermon. And if you're joining us from home this morning, go grab your Bible and come back with it to wherever you're sitting and just kind of have it open with you. Um, and that way you guys can just kind of be, be in the passage with me um, as, as we're here together. So let me read it for us. We'll be in Titus chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Okay. Um, so in this passage, we're going to look at really a theme that Paul has already begun in the verses preceding, which is there are certain things as people who are in Christ that we're called to say yes to, and there are certain things we're called to say no to. Um, Pastor Bart, when he began this series a few weeks ago, talked about how in many ways, Titus is kind of Paul's book of James, where Paul is talking about the ways in which our faith is to be active with our works. And this is kind of like Pastor Bart said, this is Paul's letter where he really hones in on that, that if you are in Christ and believe in the gospel, you'll do good works. Um, it will manifest good works in your life. And one of the ways Paul really wants to stress this point is that that is by the means of God's grace in your life. It's God's grace in your life that draws us out. So he says that a few verses earlier. Let me put it up for us. Um, at the end of chapter 2, just before this, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And the grace of God trains you. The grace of God comes into your life, and it begins instructing you and training you to say yes to some things and to say no to some things. So it causes you to renounce or to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace does. And positively, to say yes, it calls you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. 
in the present age. And so then Paul goes on to share some of the things we're to say yes to and some of the things we're to say no to. He gives a little bit more detail, um, and that's basically verses 1 and 2 and 3. So again, just so you can hear it again, here's what grace teaches you to say yes to. Grace teaches you to submit yourself to governmental authorities. How much of a burn is that? Um, Grace teaches you to be obedient to them. It teaches you to always be ready to do good, to always be ready for every good work, the the title we get this sermon series from, Uh, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That's what it tells you to say yes to. Some of the things it tells you to say no to um, are the characteristics of your life apart from Christ. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by, uh, hated by others and hating one another. Um, and so I want to grab this phrase real quick that Paul talks about. He, he says that we were once slaves to various passions and pleasures. Um, this is a notable phrase to me within this passage because in Paul's day, sensuality and indulging uh, your passions and pleasures was mainstream in in Greco-Roman society. Um, But at the same time, Christians um, were not the only voices in society saying this is a real problem. So if you, you know, there's this rampant indulgence and sensuality going on in in Greco-Roman society. If if you don't believe me, you can watch like any period piece from this era on Netflix and HBO. Um, That's not a recommendation. Um, But it was just a really pretty gross time in in terms of sensuality, but Christians were not like the lone voice in society saying this is a real problem. There were other voices in society saying we need to not be enslaved to our passions and pleasures. And this is interesting to me because I think sometimes Christians in our arrogance, we assume almost a narrative like this. We're the only ones who know what right and wrong is. And we have this like corner on morality and so The poor world is completely clueless over what God's law is, even though Romans 2 says he wrote it on their hearts. And so we've got to help them along and make sure they know what right and wrong is. That's a little bit of a reductionistic approach to life. A lot of people do know what right and wrong is. Um, And a lot of times we'll find overlap with our Christian ethics with ethics found in the world. Um, It's interesting, we're reading a book right now uh, that Pastor Bart's leading the staff in on Christian leadership. And the author of this book basically points out that like, if you look at like, leadership material coming out in the world and leadership material coming out in Christian books, they basically uh, are like total clones of each other. There's pretty much no difference. Like, you, know, you look at a leadership book and it's going to talk about you know, leaders are effective vision casters. They influence people. They have followers. They're able to like... They're really good at managing teams. They're really good at pulling out the best in people. They're really good at like, setting goals and achieving goals and, and having metrics for success in their organization or their megachurch or wherever they are. And basically, this author is essentially saying, like, if you look at this list of leaders and leadership qualities, like Billy Graham checks out and Hitler checks out. Like, There's absolutely no what the author calls, there's no Christian difference 
right? And the question then becomes, what's the Christian difference? Because there were lots of people at this time saying, guys, we do not need to be enslaved to our sensual pleasures and passions. The Jews said this in society. Um, Lots of Greek philosophers, namely Aristotle, was big on this. We don't need to give ourselves to excess and indulging our our fleshly desires and passions. Um, uh, There was a group called the Stoics. This was like their whole message was like, we've got to dominate our sinful, I mean, our carnal desires and not be ruled by them. So when Paul comes along and says um, that we should not be dominated by these things, he is by no means, and Christians are by no means, the only voice in society saying this. So then the question becomes, what is the Christian difference? And if you want to find out what the Christian difference is, all you have to do is move from verse 3 to verse 4. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. You see, Paul believes everything changed when we encountered the goodness of God. Everything changed for you and I when the kindness of God became our reality. That's the Christian difference. And I, you know, interestingly, in the New Testament, the word typically used to describe the love of God is the word agape. In this text, Paul kind of is, is playing along with the culture, and he's using a the word philanthropia, where we get the word philanthropist. Um, And this is kind of the word in the culture that was used to describe basically human love, love for humanity. This kind of, you know, kind of like we use the word philanthropist. You're just kind to people. Even if they're of a different group or of a different persuasion than you are, you're good to people. And (laughs) Paul kind of like uh, steals this word and says, God is the great philanthropist. He's the one who shows human love, love of humanity, more than anyone else. And that has is, that is fundamentally changed our orientation to the world. And I think what we kind of see in this passage and in, in, in parts of Titus is basically this call into that, which is going to require laying down self, which is never fun. Um, so let's come back to verses 1 and 2 again. Um, which I kind of see as the kindness works um, that this sermon is titled under. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I mean, that phrase is striking to me. Just be perfectly courteous towards everyone. Um, I mean, if if there's an area right now that, Christians desperately need Titus 3.2, it's probably in social media. I'm just going to tread here. Um, so, now there's different ways that preachers will kind of like uh, soften a hard word. Um, and one way is to kind of like tell a joke and, uh, and then like smash people over the head with a hard truth. It's very effective. Um, and another way that I kind of like to do it is I like to find a hard truth said by someone else and then quote them. <laughs> that way, like, they receive, like, the full weight of your offense, and I just get some of the overflow. Um, because at the end of the day, like, your offense is too much for my fragile ego. 
Um, I'm, I can totally admit that. So I was talking to a friend the other day, a pastor friend of mine, and he, he said these words to his church. Um, and uh, I thought it was so bold and so profound. And um, I want to share it with you to soften the blow. Um, so here's what he said. He said, expressing yourself controversially on social media doesn't change people's minds. They don't start to pull for your football team, they don't adopt your religion, and they don't take on your politics. Social media is performative righteousness. No one has ever changed their mind after reading your post. You are performing your righteousness before men. Gabe's pastor friend. (laughs) Um, I decided not to throw him under the bus, so... At this point, this actually could be me or Gabe's pastor friend or just Gabe. Who knows? So I think in many ways, though, this wouldn't be our reality if we were doing Titus 2, too. If we were being gentle, if we weren't quarrelsome, if we were showing perfect courtesy towards all people, if we practiced the discipline of submission. It's a very unpopular spiritual discipline. Um, and... You know, Paul, I think, would agree with this statement. I don't know how, I don't really know how you could disagree with this statement, uh, at least the first part. There's a point at which a conversation, whether on social media or with a friend or with your spouse, moves from a disagreement, which I think he would agree, disagreements are unavoidable, right? Like, just by the mere fact that people have different opinions and people have different positions. So you're, you can't avoid experiencing disagreement in the world. There's a point at which it moves from a disagreement unavoidable to a quarrel avoidable. Um, How do I know that Paul would say quarrels were avoidable? Well, in verse 2 and 9, he says avoid quarrels. So there you go. Um, He seems to believe it's avoidable. So Paul says avoid these things, and he, in verse 8 and 9, says this. He's just been talking about the gospel. All these, these terms we think of with the gospel, justified, eternal life, uh, regenerated, born again, renewed by the Spirit, saved. Um, And he says, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to insist on those things, insist on these gospel truths, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. I mean, Paul thinks there's a direct correlation to if you imbibe the truths of the gospel, you will do good things, which is a profound belief that we'll talk about more. Um, these things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid these four things, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. I think it's interesting that, like, the tact that Paul takes here. He basically says, okay, like, insisting on our inheritance of eternal life, insisting on the fact that people are declared righteous and stand perfectly accepted by God apart from what they do, you know, declaring the fact that we've been regenerated, the fact that the Spirit has been poured out richly upon people, that's like really profitable. That adds value to people's lives, insisting on these things. This other stuff is unprofitable. But Paul's basically saying, let's speak and act and shape our communities around ways that add value to people's lives. I like that approach rather than doing things that add no value to someone. Um, so I want to kind of take these, um, these four things here in Titus uh, 3.9. He first says, avoid foolish controversies. 
I think it's the, the qualifier foolish is important here um, because there were absolutely times that Paul got controversial, right? And there's times you need to say something controversial. I mean, when Paul made the claim, um, those, know then it's those of faith who are sons of Abraham, that was a wildly controversial statement, right? So for all of Israel's history, a child of Abraham was someone who was either a direct descendant who was circumcised, or a foreigner who had received the covenant given, the sign of the covenant given to Abraham in Genesis 17, which was circumcision. That's how you came into Abraham's household and came into the covenant that was given to Abraham. It's very clear. And Genesis 17 says, this will be a covenant in my flesh forever. And so for Paul then to come along and say, all you need to be a child of Abraham and heir according to his promises is to believe in Jesus was incredibly controversial, right? But he would die on that hill, Paul would. So Paul, this is where I think he's saying, let's, we need discernment to know what kind of controversial claims are simply foolish or the controversy that will genuinely add value to someone's life, right, if they come on board. The next one is genealogies, and this one's interesting. Just indulge me in my geekery for a moment. Um, so what this probably has to do with is particularly Jewish families who had their family trees, and they could come along with their family trees or their family genealogies, and if they could kind of point to a particularly noteworthy figure in Israel's history, then that kind of gave them a sort of standing. So like if, if you could say, I'm a direct descendant of David, I'm a direct descendant of one of the priests or one of the prophets or one of the governors, that kind of gave you a bit of a leg up. It was, it was kind of seen within uh, communities. And Paul's like, this is just so pointless. He has, Paul just sees no value in this kind of, he just thinks it's prideful um, to be like, yeah, I've got this, you know, this heritage that just makes me better than you. Um, this is interesting to me for a moment because if you read the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, Matthew and Luke provided genealogy for Jesus. And they actually do make a big deal of the fact that Jesus is a biological descendant of David and Abraham and other key figures. And I think, I'm just going to go on a limb here, I think Paul would say, yeah, that's important for Jesus because Jesus is a big deal. It's not for you, though. <laughs> I really think Paul would be like, yeah, that matters in Matthew and Luke, but it doesn't matter for you guys. Um, you're all on the same plane together. So don't try to tout your genealogy. Get that out of my face. Um, next one is uh, just kind of more generically dissensions. Anything that causes disunity, that tears the body of Christ apart. And again, I think the best way to kind of measure what that would be is, is it worthless? Does it add value to people? And the fourth one is quarrels about the law. Um, the law, probably the Torah. And so, you know, in the New Testament era, all they had was the Old Testament, right? That's their Bible. And probably what this has to do with is people at Crete, where, where Titus is ministering, um, are basically, they have their Bibles out, and they're just kind of fighting over different laws and which ones are still obligatory and which ones we can get a pass on and, and just duking it out over this and basically turning the Bible into nothing more than this legalistic book, right? And I think we need to be careful as God's people to not do this. Paul 
sees that as very worthless and pointless to just turn the Bible into this place of do's and don'ts. Um, so, let me see. Where am I at? Um, so there's a point, like I said earlier, where a conversation moves from a disagreement, unavoidable, to a quarrel or a fight that is avoidable. Just take a second to think about that. You can kind of think back on your own fights, particularly ones you won. I'm just kidding. Um, what moves a conversation from a disagreement to a fight or a quarrel? I'm not necessarily looking for one answer. Yeah, let's just hear some. Yeah, fence. Yeah, there's some others. Pride, yes. Having to be right, yes. Mm, ooh. Ooh. Mm, yeah, selfishness. Interestingly, James... I'm not trying to James juke you here, but uh, James actually asks this question and answers his own question in chapter 4 in James, and he says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? And this is his answer. Is it not this, that your pleasures are at war within you? Which actually pulls in a lot of what y'all just said. Um, James is saying that's what causes it to become a quarrel. You're... You're craving to satisfy your own desires. Um, that, is, that is battling in your soul. And as that becomes more prominent, that's what moves a disagreement to a quarrel, which is, Paul would say, avoidable. Um, in verse 2, James goes on and says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Again, it's this covetousness, this envy, these warring pleasures within us that basically the assertion of self is where, what I really think James is saying. The refusal to lay down yourself and self-promotion um, that moves you to that point. And in many ways, verses 1 and 2 and verse 3, I know this is, this is small, hopefully you can read it, um, present two lives, two kind of ways of living. Uh, and verses 1 and 2 is basically the others-focused life, particularly a life framed by works of kindness. And verse 3 is the self-focused life. And, and actually, as you look at them in order as how they're presented, they, they parallel each other. So submissive is kind of countered with foolish. It's foolish not to be submissive. Um, obedient, of course, countered by disobedient. Um, someone who, who just cannot... Uh, you know, submit to authority and has to, has to defend themselves, um, just disobedient. Um, on the one side, you on the other focused life is ready for every good work. You're always in a place looking for an opportunity to do good to someone. And the other side, rather than always being ready to do good, someone is just enslaved to their, gratifying their own passion, their own pleasure. They're not free to do good. Um, on the one side, speaking evil of no one. On the other, passing your days in malice. Avoiding quarrels or passing your days in envy, which we just saw from James, covetousness and envy is what leads to quarrels. Um, showing gentleness and common courtesy on the one side and hated by others and hating one another on the other side. 
Um, the lifelong missionary, E. Stanley Jones, had this to say. I think this is really interesting. He said, we've seen many a missionary leave loved ones, friends, home, business, prospects, and come to other lands and find that he had given up everything except himself. Self was still there, assertive and jealous of its place in honor. Jesus asked us to lay this down too. You know, I think, and probably rightly, we think about overseas missionaries like Amy Jacks um, as these people who are these exemplary figures who have sacrificed so much for the cause of Christ. Um, and Amy Jacks is that for us, and so many are that for us. But I think it's interesting, like East Stanley Jones said, he's like, yeah, we've seen lots of missionaries come, and they've left everything except self. Um, and I think the point is not in any way to diminish the sacrifice of missionaries. Paul basically seems to think you can give almost any amount of sacrifice and it not be out of love. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I give everything I have and have not love, I gain nothing. If I give my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. I mean, I, I think what Paul's doing here in 1 Corinthians 13, 3 is pretty much thinking of like the two things that any of us could conceive of as being like the most we could sacrifice, right? So all of my financial wealth in this world and my own life, right? I mean, every, all the wealth you've accumulated, giving it all away to the needy and then dying for Christ. The, probably the two biggest sacrifices we could think of. Um, and Paul's saying even those do not necessarily equate to love, is Paul's point. I mean, great sacrifice does not necessarily equate to love, is exactly what Paul's saying. Um, and, you know, we hear, I've heard this joke um, that, like, when you get married, it's like deciding to basically get in the coffin of your own death to self, right? And you're like, all right, well... I'm now going to die to self and get in this coffin of death to self. And then every child is like a new nail on the coffin, right? <laughs> and although I understand the sentiment of this metaphor, I want to simply push back on that for a moment and say that is not guaranteed. Some of the most selfish people I know are married. And simply adding kids isn't the silver bullet. I probably should have gotten a preacher to quote from, for that one. Um, next time. Now, I do think that marriage and parenting are opportunities for us to lay down self if we avail ourselves of it and, and, and pursue that. But marriage parenting, being an overseas missionary, giving all your money, and dying for Christ can all be done apparently for selfish reasons, not for love. You know, all this may sound a little depressing, and I, isn't, the, the, the call to holiness, to sanctification, to living this kind of way, um, it's hard. Scott and I have talked multiple times about how, like, do we even believe the doctrine of sanctification? Like, that's not a good confession as a pastor. I realize that. 
Um, but like, I mean, I, I look like at myself from Gabe 10 years ago, like, am I any holier than I was 10 years ago? Like, maybe, you know? Um, sometimes it can be hard to feel like we really are growing in the likeness of Christ. Um, you know, there's the joke of the guy who prays, God, I just, I thank you that my, my mind has not strayed from your ways all day. And I have not broken your commandments today. And now, Lord, as I get out of bed, and start my day. You know, I, I think living a holy day can feel like that, like you're good for 10 minutes. Um, but I think there really is a grace for us to become more like Jesus. And Paul's prescription is live in the gospel. True freedom is doing the right thing for love. Not because you hope to be accepted by God not because you'll be praised by others. And this is what I love about the gospel. The philanthropy of God saved us. And his philanthropic act wasn't motivated by your good works or my good works. God didn't say, I, I, I anticipate Gabriel might do some good things. He did it freely. God acted freely because he wants my good. And he wants your good in his glory. And his humanity love is indiscriminate. You know, I used to think that the gospel was like first grade. And what I mean by that is like, it's kind of like the basics and it's foundational. So you need it. But at some point, like we got to get to like some deeper stuff here. I mean, like this is good and great. But like at some point, let's get to like the good stuff. Um. Kind of like, you know, sure, like, you guys need, like, you know, phonics and first grade math to make it in the world, but, like, let's face it, you're not going to, uh, you know, crush an interview and land a killer job because you can sound out the name of your interviewer. You need something better than that, right? Like, you need some more knowledge to make it in the world than first grade, and the gospel's kind of like that. It's good, it's basic, it's foundational, um, but we got to get to, like, the, the deeper stuff. And that way of thinking about the gospel works like a charm. All you got to do is one thing. Don't read the Bible. Because if you read the Bible, the second you do, you realize, particularly the New Testament, over and over again, how is it that the apostles respond to every single situation or crisis or event or disunity in the churches they're writing to? It's through the gospel, applying the gospel to life. Because they believed the gospel is a tool for living. So, if it's Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Rome, which is the backdrop of the letter of Romans, who are no longer worshiping together because of their religious differences, Paul will say, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. If it's sectarianism in Corinth with people basically going after the preacher that they thought was the most polished and the best preacher, whether it be Peter or Paul, Apollos, or someone else. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If it's Believers in Philippi who are at each other's throats, particularly these two warring women, Yodia and Senteki, that Pastor Bart preached on recently, 
The answer is, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be seized, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If it's persecuted Jewish Christians uh, in the backdrop of the letter to the Hebrews who are being tempted to forsake Christ to come back under the safety of Judaism, we read, at the present moment, we don't see everything in subjection to him. That's true. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. If Paul's trying to motivate believers in Corinth to join him in the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, he says this, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So why don't you join me in this offering for these poor saints in Jerusalem? If it's a spirituality that's overemphasizing angels or visionary experiences and mysteries, Paul says to the believers in Colossae, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for all who have not met personally that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, that there's something better than Jesus. If it's John calling a fractured church back to love, it's anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that through him we might live. This is an apostolic approach to living. The gospel isn't kindergarten. It's grad school. It's a PhD. It's also high school, middle school, and elementary school. And the point here is this, is that the message of the gospel will speak to every moral decision facing a believer. If not directly, then at least indirectly. Gospel doesn't teach you how to build a table or rocket science, but when it comes to any and every moral decision you could possibly face, the gospel will speak to it, whether directly or indirectly. So when Paul tells Titus to insist on gospel truths so that people will devote themselves to good works, he believes this to the core of his being. Paul would stake his entire ministry on that being true. In fact, he did over and over again. That's an apostolic approach to living. Because the apostles' theory, to use modern language, The apostle's theory of behavior modification was drink deep of the gospel. 
and encouraging people to live into that story, to really believe it, receive it, let it occupy your minds. You know, the, we tend to feel like if you want to like modify people's behavior, the best bet seems to be preaching moralistic sermons. That's how you make people ready for every good work. Um, there's kind of like a preacher taboo to like never read long paragraphs as I'm getting out my book. Um, but this one's good enough to read, so I'm going to read a long paragraph. This is Brian Chapel. He says, Emphasizing the unconditional nature of the love of God in our preaching is quite concerning to many who rightly insist that Scripture demands holy living. They worry that if we do not make God's affection conditional on our obedience, we have, in essence, granted people liberty to disobey. When such concern is voiced, we who hold to the truths of the gospel have no choice but to concede the validity of the concern. There's a math of the mind that's unavoidable. If you tell me that I can sin and be loved no less by a holy God, then it may seem you've given me freedom to sin. I love this. But the math of the mind is not the chemistry of the heart. The heart works beyond and above mere logic. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And made it pretty much that simple. Uh, earlier this fall, one night, Jordan and I and Adeline were driving home. And I was, we were going down Chapel Road. And I was uh, speeding. I was actually going really fast. And, um, and I saw the lights light up in my rearview mirror. I got that sinking pit in my stomach. You know, you got caught. And as I'm beginning to pull over, I look back to see the cop. And I see Adeline kicking her light-up princess shoes together. I was like, <laughs> I thought I was being pulled over by the law. Instead, I received a much kinder and cuter reminder to slow down, which I did, by the way, actually. It's like, thanks, Adeline. I'll slow down. You know, for much of my life, sinning felt like being pulled over by God's law, slapped with a fine, or maybe a warning. But now, when I realize I've sinned, rather than the flashing sirens and that sinking pit in my stomach, I hear something more like the words of Jesus. Gabriel, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And then I respond something like, you're right, Lord. I stepped away from that. I live to love you. Unite my heart and heal my wandering heart to come back to your ways. Because at the end of the day, God wouldn't command anything that is not for your good and his glory. And trusting that is so freeing. God is not policing you. He's transforming you. And this transformation doesn't come to believers who treat the gospel as fire insurance. It comes to those who see the gospel as their reality, 
the air you breathe, your mind must become occupied by your own belovedness. And with that, we're going to receive the table today. Let me uh, welcome you to the table. This is the table not of the church, but of the Lord. So come, all of you who have faith in Christ, and join his people in this remembrance of Jesus. Come, you who feel far from God, and you who feel near. Come, you who feel clean, and you who feel dirty. Come, you that have been broken, and you who have been healed. Come, you who have been here often, and you who have not been here very many times. Come, you who have much, and you who have little. Come black, come white, come women, come men, come children who know our Savior. For the sinless life that you should have lived has been lived for you by Christ. And the guilty death that you should have died has been died for you by Christ. We bring nothing to this table except faith. So come with empty and outstretched hands to receive the body and the blood of Christ given for you. If you're in these center sections, you'll come to this.